Last year, a man was jailed for murdering his wife. She had disappeared uh, apparently 40 years before, but he was charged with her murder after he sold his farmhouse and the new owners called out a contractor to service the septic tank and found her body inside it, uh, where it had been the whole time. The murder took place four decades ago. The husband was now 89 years old. But no one suggested that it didn't matter anymore. No one said that enough time had passed and it was just time to move on. A brutal murder had been carried out and justice had to be done. The passage that we're coming to this evening in some ways seems a million miles from life today. But against a background of news stories like that, it's actually much closer than we might think. And it points us to a God whose justice reaches further than societies can. Uh, But a God who also wants to expose sin in order that it can be dealt with once and for all. Uh, Our society can expose sin so that sin might be punished and yet God can expose sin so that sin could be forgiven. So that's, uh, that's our, our, our theme this evening. Uh, we're going to look at this passage under four headings. Uh, each of the headings uh, really stands alone. Uh, they're not so much connected with each other, but, but I think that each one does summarize a key truth from this passage. And our first heading tonight is the mercy of clarity. Uh, The mercy of clarity. A couple of weeks ago, one of our sister RP churches held a series of three special meetings. Uh, The leaflets for it had a, a, a picture on the front of a globe. The globe was made out of porcelain. It was cracked and the title was The World's Broke. The world's broke. Uh, There was a bit of discussion beforehand whether it should be broke or broken, uh, but I think it was partly uh, meant to be a comment on the financial crisis as well as everything else. But anyway, whether you say the world's broke or the world's broken, you're going to find a lot of people who agree with that statement. What they may not agree on, however, is what's caused it. Yes, the world is broken, but why is the world broken? But wonderfully, we have a God who doesn't just tell us that things are bad uh, because we could work that out for ourselves. Uh, But we have a God who also tells us why things are bad. And that is a mercy that we shouldn't take for granted. We see it in the passage in front of us this evening. Uh, The chapter opens with a famine. But there's something unusual about this famine Because it just keeps going and going. And how does David respond in verse 1? Well, he seeks the face of the Lord. I don't miss how wonderful it is that we have that option. As Christians, we have a God that we can go to for clarity. How different this is from the world. A crisis hits our world. Think of COVID, for example, and what's the world's reaction? 
we can fix this. They don't seek the face of the Lord because they don't think they need to. I think of the average unbeliever. Their child perhaps rushed to hospital or some other crisis hits their life, but they have no God to seek the face of. Do you realise how blessed you are to have a God that you can go to in a crisis? Boys and girls, some of your friends who who don't know God, when, when sad things happen to them or when they're worried, they do not have a God that they can pray to, but you do. And that is an amazing thing. So David goes to the Lord to ask what's causing the famine. And God's answer is blood guilt. In other words, sin. Now that might not necessarily be the answer that David wants to hear. But again, what a mercy it is when God just tells us straight what the actual issue is. I think of someone today who might go to a counsellor and maybe their life is just dominated by sin. Say they're, they're having a, an affair and they're, they're super stressed trying to keep it hidden and also keep up appearances at home. Uh, their, their lover is putting pressure on them to leave their wife. Uh, but that counsellor, if they're not a Christian, isn't going to say, you're living in sin and you need to stop it right now. Why not? Well, because sin isn't a category that an unbelieving counsellor can use because they don't believe in it. Or perhaps the the person that comes to them is suffering the consequences of a sinful lifestyle or or many sinful lifestyle choices in the past. And the counsellor isn't going to be able to say what what they, they should say or what they would be able to say if they were a Christian which is that first and foremost, this this person before them is suffering the consequences of of past sin, uh, which needs to be repented of and dealt with. But rather all a counsellor could do, an unbelieving counsellor in that situation, is to try and help them manage the situation they find themselves in now, without dealing with the roots of the problem. If someone went to the doctor with a physical illness and the doctor knew what was causing it but only told the patient how to manage their symptoms, that wouldn't be loving if they could actually deal with the problem at the source. But once society loses the category of sin, it can't, it can't deal with the problem at the source. It can only ever try and treat the symptoms. And of course, once society loses the category of sin, many churches aren't too far behind. But God in his mercy tells us what the root cause of our problems are in order that we could do something about it. Or rather, that we might come to him and have him do something about it. So firstly tonight, the mercy of clarity. Secondly, the second lesson we we take from this chapter is that sin has no time limit. Sin has no time limit. In law, there's such a thing as a a statute of limitations. Uh, There are some crimes where if legal proceedings aren't begun within a certain number of years, then it's too late to do anything about it. 
Uh, but there's no statute of limitations with God. One of the great myths we believe is that time heals sin. That if something happened long enough ago, we can just move on. But not with God. And we have an example of that here. We learn from verse 1 that the, the sin that is causing the famine is Saul's execution of the Gibeonites. And if you're wondering who the Gibeonites are, verse 2 gives you pretty much all you need to know. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. Way back in in Joshua chapter 9, many, many, many years before this, the Gibeonites had tricked Joshua and the people into making a covenant with them. They had pretended that they'd come from a long way away when they were actually uh, their neighbours. Three days after making the covenant, the Israelites find out who they really were. and They had buyer's remorse in a sense. Uh, the people of Israel, they wanted to kill the Gibeonites. They, they've tricked us. But Joshua and the other leaders told them, We have sworn by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. We will let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. That was four centuries ago. 400 years had passed between then and Saul's day. And although what Saul did isn't recorded anywhere else in the Bible, uh, we learn here that he slaughtered many of them. And that's not really a surprising thing to learn about Saul. Uh, You might remember 1 Samuel 22, he had commanded the murder of 85 priests of God. So if if he doesn't have a a concern about slaughtering the priests of God, he's unlikely to be worried about slaughtering these foreigners. So why did Saul kill the Gibeonites? Well, from what we're told here in verse 2, it seems he struck them down in some sort of nationalistic zeal. Now, zeal can be a good thing, but but zeal can also be misplaced. It's not a good thing in and of itself. And Saul, in his misplaced zeal, broke a covenant that had been made four centuries earlier. It may have been a long, long time ago, uh, and yet that didn't change anything. There was no time limit on the covenant. And if it was wrong for Saul to break a covenant that the people of Israel had been tricked into making all those years before, how much more serious must it be for our own nation to have broken the covenants that it made with God almost four centuries ago? Very similar time frame to... uh, the day of Saul going back to the day of the Gibeonites to, 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 to our day going back to, to the covenants of the 1600s. Uh, many people have forgotten about them, but there's no, there's no time limit on them. And Saul's 
biggest crime here is taking God's name in vain. Remember what Joshua and the other leaders had said. We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. And so to break that vow that had been made in God's name was to drag God's name through the muck. The blood that had been shed needed atoned for. And in fact, if it wasn't atoned for, it would look like the God of Israel was some sort of nationalistic God who, who never held his people to account. So far, it all probably makes sense. Saul has, has done something bad that needs punished. But of course, the, the shocking thing about this chapter is that the atonement is made not by executing Saul because he is off the scene by this point. He, he's dead. But atonement is made by executing seven of his sons. And we will come back to, to think specifically about that under our next point. But before we do, don't miss the, the basic point that the passage is making, which is that sin has consequences. And that the guilt of sin will remain until atonement is made. The guilt of sin will remain until atonement is made. Just because Saul's not around anymore, that doesn't mean his sin is forgotten. Committing sin against God isn't like getting penalty points where if you wait long enough, they'll, they'll disappear from your license. If we think it's a good thing that criminals today are being brought to justice for crimes committed 40, 50, 60 years ago, what sort of God would God be if he had a perfect knowledge of all things but choose to overlook sin if God said well that was a long time ago so it doesn't really matter Jesus himself said that on the day of judgment people will give account for every careless word they speak and every careless word means words we spoke when we were young as well as words we spoke when we were old other people may have forgotten our sinful words, but God hasn't. Now, wonderfully, God has made a way for sin to be dealt with. Because of the death of Jesus in our place, we have uh, that amazing promise that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But if we refuse to go to Jesus for forgiveness... One day we will have to answer ourselves for every sin that we've ever committed. Every careless word, every wrong thought, every hurtful action. Either we accept Jesus' atonement for our sins or, or we will face the consequences ourselves. Saul is dead, but his guilt remains unatoned for. And why would we assume that he or, or any other believer is now in a better place when their guilt remains? So secondly, this evening, sin has no time limit. If sin is to be removed, it must be removed at the cross. Otherwise, it remains Thirdly, we see what atonement looks like. 
what a tournament looks like. Perhaps we get the fact that Saul has committed a sin that needs dealt with. But people often struggle with what happens next. I have a book entitled Hard Sayings of the Bible. It deals with parts of the Bible that, that people particularly struggle with. And this is in there. And the question it deals with might be on your mind as well this evening. And that is, why were Saul's descendants killed? After all, does God's law itself not teach us in Deuteronomy 24.16 that fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their fathers? Each is to die for his own sin. And so actually, if you're saying, well, well this doesn't sound right, that children should die for the sin of their fathers. Well, well the Bible actually says that itself. Uh, your concern is in the Bible itself. But Saul wasn't just an ordinary father, was he? He was the king. And his actions as king involved more than himself alone. Just as if his majesty's government were to declare war with Russia, we would all be at war with Russia. And Saul's sin brings consequences for his house, for his dynasty. Uh, there is a, a new ruling dynasty, uh, but by this time it's the house of David in charge rather than the house of Saul. And uh, David and his house, they don't share the blame for what Saul did, though they're suffering the consequences of the famine just like everyone else. But there are still some of Saul's family around. Because unlike other kings would have done, David hadn't wiped them out. You know, some people say, well, well, David made up this whole thing to try and wipe out some of Saul's family. But, you know, David, if he'd wanted to do that, he didn't need an excuse for this because this was just what was done, uh, that, that the family of the previous king would be wiped out. But David hasn't done that. And so there's still some of them around. And, and the Gibeonites say that it is the house of Saul that bears the guilt. David, in verse 3, offers to make atonement himself. How shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? Perhaps David is thinking there's something financial. Uh, can, can, we, can we pay you compensation? But the Gibeonites say in verse 4, basically, that silver or gold won't cut it. Rather, blood must be shed. And this wasn't simply some belief that the Gibeonites had. God himself had given the people a law in Numbers 35, verse 33, that said, Blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. So blood pollutes the land, and that pollution can only be dealt with by the blood of the one who shed the blood in the first place. That should have been done in Saul's lifetime, but it wasn't because the king, the very one who should have been enforcing the law, was the one who had shed the blood. But the land was still polluted because of the blood that Saul had shed. And so the Gibeonites request that they be given seven of Saul's sons to execute. 
And perhaps at this point our natural reaction is to try and look away. We'd rather not think about it. We'd rather uh, skip on to the, the giants in the rest of the chapter. It's a temptation even for the preacher. Uh, and yet, this is God's word. And it's here to teach us what atonement looks like. This is what it takes for God's wrath to be satisfied. Now in a sense, large parts of the Old Testament are there to to teach us what atonement looks like. Uh, The shedding of blood of millions upon millions of animals. uh, Teaching that without the shedding of blood there could be no remission of sins. And all those animal sacrifices would have been far more bloody and involved far more gore than we probably picture. But even for them, in a sense, they probably got used to it. It became routine. But here we have something that that we can't even surely think about without a sense of raw horror. These seven men hanging there. And surely it's intentionally meant to horrify us. This is what it took not to save Saul's soul because uh, no human, merely human death could do that. But this is what, what it took to undo the effect of his mass killing. An atonement must be made for our sin too. We're born into this world as part of Adam's dynasty. We share the guilt of his sin and we add to that guilt every day. And so atonement must be made. And if we have lost a sense of the the horror of what that atonement involved, this passage is meant to stop us in our tracks. If the cross has become sanitised for us, if it has become simply a symbol Here we have a reminder of the horror of atonement, of the cost of it. As someone has put it, the stench of death hangs heavy wherever the wrath of God has been quenched. The stench of death hangs heavy wherever the wrath of God has been quenched. And surely this passage is here to point us forward to another son being hanged before the Lord on a hill. A son who was truly innocent, but hanging there in place of the guilty. Surely Gibeah is meant to point us forward to Golgotha. This is a a unique passage of of God's word. We don't have a, a parallel to it anywhere else. And surely it's meant to stop us in our tracks. Surely it's meant to make us think of the seriousness of our sin and what it cost for that sin to be atoned for. And even then, Gibeah here, it's nothing compared to Calvary. When the holy wrath of God was poured out on his eternal sinless son. So as much as we might want to, this is not a passage that we're meant to skip over. We're meant to linger here. Uh, We're meant to be shocked by it. And there's someone in this passage who who does linger over it. 
In verse 10, we have Rizpah. Uh, she is the mother of two of those who were killed. She spreads sackcloth for herself and she stays beside the bodies. She won't allow the birds or the animals to get at them. What grief she has. It's an incredibly sad picture. And we're meant to feel the sadness of it. Sometimes we have to fight against our tendency to want to to move on too quickly or, or search for some practical application from the passage. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay at the heart. And so as we linger here in the house of mourning, we can be sad at the thought of a mother bereaved of her children. But above all, we should think of what our sin cost the Son of God. And that leaves us with a a profound sense of sadness and mournfulness about what Jesus went through for us. Then I don't think there's anything unhealthy about that. Of course, there will be much gratefulness mixed in with it. And as we think tonight, both of the horror and the love demonstrated at the cross, and as we think of the importance of dwelling on it, perhaps this sermon might be a spur to to some of us to, to pick up a book on the cross such as the book The Cross He Bore uh, by the late Irish RP minister Fred Leakey. Uh, it's a, it's a, a short book, it's short uh, meditations on the cross. Anyone could read it. Uh, the, 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 the subtitle is Meditations on the Suffering of the Redeemer. And surely if we don't meditate often on the sufferings of the Redeemer, our Christian lives will be impoverished. Other Christians over these next few weeks in the lead up to Easter, it's something they may meditate on it. On uh, We may not do it for the same reasons as they do. But we need to meditate often on the cross. Uh, maybe this, this sermon will be a spur to, to some of us. Thirdly tonight, what atonement looks like. But then fourthly, finally, and just really in closing tonight, we want to finish with two two positives and two things you can be sure of. So fourthly, finally, and in conclusion, two things you can be sure of. The first thing you can be sure of is we have a better king. We have a better king. It's in the book of Acts, the Christians are accused of saying there is another king, one Jesus. So we have another king from those around us. We also have a better king. There's a contrast in this chapter between the old king and the new one. Saul is a covenant-breaking king. He violated the covenant that had been made before God with the Gibeonites. But there's there's just a little comment in verse 7 that reminds us that David is very different. In verse 7, 
the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. Uh, So even there we could say that one of those who died, died as a substitute for Mephibosheth. Uh, One of them even, even shares his name. But King Saul, he was a king who ignored covenants and took life. But David, he keeps covenants and saves life. That's what verse 7 reminds us. Saul ignores covenants and takes life. David keeps covenants and saves life. In this chapter, we have a better king than Saul, King David. But of course, as Christians, we have a better king even than David. We've seen enough of David's sin in recent weeks to realise that he is very far from perfect. And if there is such a contrast between Saul and David, uh, despite David's sin, how much more infinitely glorious is Jesus Christ? As we read this chapter, we think, well, David is a better king than Saul. David keeps the covenant he made with Jonathan, even though it was a long time ago at this point. Saul didn't. David is a better king than Saul, but Jesus is the best king of all. We have a better king. But the second thing uh, we can be sure of, and with this we'll close, we can be confident that atonement works. We can be confident that atonement works. How did the chapter start? Famine. And how does, it, does our section end? It ends with God responding to the plea for the land. The plea, the prayer to bring an end to the famine. Saul's so sons are, are hanged in the first days of harvest, at the beginning of barley harvest. Now there wouldn't have been much harvest that year, but it was coming In verse 10, Rizpah guards the bodies until rain falls from the heavens and the rain signals the end of the famine. It's telling us that once atonement is made, the famine will be over and blessing will come. Once atonement is made, it's the beginning of the harvest. And do we see that with the death of Jesus? What happened 50 days later? Pentecost the feast of harvest or first fruits. Atonement had been made at the cross, and now the first showers of blessing are falling as 3,000 are saved. And so, if you know blessing in your life tonight, if you're numbered tonight among God's people uh, by faith in a common Saviour, it's only because atonement has been made for you at the cross. But on the other hand, if you approach the cross like some approach this passage as an embarrassment, as something to be skipped over as quickly as possible, as something to be explained away, then you won't know the blessing that follows. But tonight God in his kindness is again inviting you to experience the rule of a better king and to experience the amazing truth that though atonement is brutal, that it actually works. And you too can know the showers of blessing that it brings. Amen. Well, we close by turning to Psalm 90. Psalm number 90, the A version.
page 209, Psalm 90a, from verse 5 to the end, starting on page 209. And the last two lines of verse 5 could be the theme of tonight's passage. You know, imagine a, a sermon that was just on these, these last two lines of verse 5. Who has your anger understood? Who fears your fury as he should? So quickly we want to move on. Uh, but, we're, but we're to stop and we're to ponder. Uh, we're, to, we're to think about God's anger. We're to be, think about his fury. We, we see it here. Uh, we see it above all at the cross. And we're to think about it that we might know the joy that is on offer in the rest of the psalm. The joy that comes as a result. Uh, At the end of verse 6, fill us each morning with your grace. We'll sing for joy, be glad always. Uh, And then verse 8, let us, on us, let there be shed abroad the favour of the Lord our God. And then the closing two lines, yes, let the works that by our hands that our hands do, established firmly, be by you. And so we don't, we don't stop here with the, uh, the meditation on God's anger at the end of verse 5, but unless we have come to, to, to realise the, the reality of the anger of God against sin, uh, and unless we have seen that it can only be dealt with at the cross, then we won't know the joy that follows, the joy that comes with sin forgiven. So Psalm 90a, the tune is 266. Uh, We'll sing five to the end. We'll stand to sing praise.